Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout, and this is Sherry Ann, and we are hosts of Molotov Now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. In part one of this episode, we covered the articles written by the Daily World, chronicling the moves the city made to evict the homeless from their longtime community at the river camp. This part of the episode will be a continuation of that story, but with a switch to reporting from the Harbor Rat Report, then still publishing as Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. This will help us bring the other side of the story to bear, since the daily world is usually quite biased against the homeless. We have been in conversation with the homeless since we began our work, and it is those perspectives which now influence the reporting more than the quotes from police and city officials. Through this, we get more of a sense of the anger inherent on the side of those being oppressed and traumatized by the city. We hope to tell these stories with more in-depth interviews in future reporting. One of the most humanizing activities we can engage in is storytelling. Telling the stories of those on the streets can bring them into focus as an actual person and not just some abstract drug user or mental health patient they someone doesn't know. We have a couple of articles to cover in this episode about our local far-right fascists and their efforts at securing seats on city council and the county commission in order to eradicate the homeless from our town. We will hear about their denial of a local low-barrier shelter and how they sent back millions of dollars in state funding for the project. We will be discussing our community's reactions to multiple winters here in the Pacific Northwest, as well as far-right reactions to the multiple manufactured crises, such as garbage, porta-potties, and needles. Oh, also that transphobic Star Wars shop that went viral in that video and brought in Proud Boys from as far as Portland, Oregon. Fun stuff. Yeah, that was an alarming experience to go through. We never expected to have to deal with that level of paranoia about our group's actions, or that much participation by actual fascist street gangs from outside our town. Truly remarkable. So along with these articles detailing the rest of our story, bringing us to the present day, we've got music from Days and Days and the Window Smashing Job Creators again this episode. And please stay tuned for our monthly Radical News Roundup after this brief message from our sponsor. Hello, Grace Harbor and outside listeners. Let us introduce ourselves. We are the Black Flower Collective, and we're a new business in Grays Harbor. We are a worker-owned and operated enterprise dedicated to the creation of a world in which individuals have the autonomy, knowledge, and resources to create fulfilling lives and communities free of oppression. Our mission is to learn together the ways in which to healthily relate to each other and our environment. We seek to sustain and nourish our collective through fulfilling work, personal empowerment, and an equitable compensation while providing a hub for political thought and culture in Grays Harbor County. For a more detailed list of our planned projects and goals, check out our website at blackflowercollective.noblogs.org.
Welcome back to Molotov Now. Before we begin to dive back into the articles depicting the recent local history of the homeless, we have a quick update on recent news in Washington State. Federal judge in Washington State has dismissed Salem, Massachusetts Corporation's slap suit for the second time. From Seattle, Washington. For the second time in nearly three years of litigation, a federal district court in Washington state dismissed all claims made by the Satanic Temple against four of its former members. The court found that, the federal claims having been previously dismissed, it lacked jurisdiction to hear the Satanic Temple's remaining state law claims. We appreciate Judge Richard Jones confirming that the First Amendment still exists in this country, Defendant David Johnson says. Religions are not immune from public criticism. After a schism in March 2020 in the Washington State chapter, the temple alleged that the then-social media manager Johnson used what had been the local chapter's Facebook page to post criticism of the temple and how its leaders' actions had not lived up to the Satanic Temple's own stated tenets and values. This criticism came in the form of news articles, other former member testimonies, and past actions by the Satanic Temple co-owners Kevin Soling and Doug Misico. Misico has also used the public pseudonyms Doug Mesner and Lucian Graves for the temple, while Soling initially used the pseudonym Calvin Soling for the lawsuit and uses Malcolm Jerry for the temple. We're not the first people the temple has tried to bully or abuse into silence, defendant Leah Fishbaugh said. We're determined not to let the satanic temple intimidate us. In initial court filings, Salem, Massachusetts-based for-profit corporation United Federation of Churches, LLC, doing business as the Satanic Temple, tried to allege they were the victims of defamation. The court dismissed the defamation claim with prejudice in February 2021, citing First Amendment protections, but the remaining claims were dismissed with leave to refile. The Satanic Temple did so in March 2021, adding new claims, revising others, and dropping one. In April 2020, the Temple's attempt at reconsideration failed, and all remaining federal claims were also dismissed. In June, the Satanic Temple's lead counsel, Matt Kezhaya, admitted on his Reddit account that he needed to come up with, quote, a credible justification that it is not impossible a jury could legally award at least $75,000 in damages, and that he hoped legal defense costs squeezed, quote, every last penny from the defendant's living corpses, and anyone that gives them the time of day. The Satanic Temple accused us of forming a competitor organization to their religion based on a Facebook comment saying, quote, the Satanic Temple 2, Electric Boogaloo. So the outcome was never really in doubt, Defendant Nathan Sullivan said. But like the old saying, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. This slap suit did what it was supposed to do for them. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. They are frivolous lawsuits with no legal merit designed to threaten targets into not criticizing the plaintiff. Such lawsuits stifle public debate or dissent, particularly when brought by well-resourced plaintiffs. This has been a strain on our families, on our personal relationships, on our financial security, and on our physical and mental health, Defendant Leah Fishbaugh said. I'm ready to finally have my life back. As of December 2022, total legal costs for the defendants exceeded $100,000. In Walla Walla, a report by the Union Bulletin read, The trial of Brandon O'Neill, the man accused of shooting a law enforcement officer in the face in September, has been delayed to March 21st. 
O'Neill, 37, of Walla Walla, was in Walla Walla County Superior Court in front of Judge Brandon L. Johnson on Wednesday, January 4th, for a pretrial hearing because his trial was originally scheduled to start January 24th. His attorney, Julie Carlson Straub, requested more time, but said she did not want the trial pushed back too far. She asked for a new date in March. Walla Walla County Prosecuting Attorney Gabe Acosta, who took office January 1st, also said he wanted the delay because he just took the case over from retired prosecuting attorney Jim Nagel. O'Neill is charged with first-degree attempted premeditated murder, first-degree assault with a deadly weapon, attempting to elude police, threatening to bomb with an intent to alarm, and harassment with threats to kill. First-degree attempted murder and first-degree assault are Class A felonies with a maximum penalty of life in prison. Threatening to bomb is a Class B felony with a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. His other two charges, Class E felonies, carry maximum sentences of 5 years in prison. O'Neill is accused of stopping his vehicle near Washington State Patrol Trooper Dean Atkinson Jr.'s police vehicle on West Poplar Street, getting out and shooting the trooper multiple times in the hand and face, according to court documents. Earlier on the day of the shooting, Walla Walla County Sheriff's Office deputies evicted O'Neill from his Walla Walla apartment. According to the court documents, an eviction summons application filed by the apartment's property management company cited an alleged threat by O'Neill to execute any cop or manager who tried to evict him. In a post made by the Facebook account Exposed Fascism Walla Walla, O'Neill was being served eviction papers by Atkinson. O'Neill is a formerly unhoused resident of Walla Walla and was for years. When faced with the prospect of eviction and therefore returning to the streets, O'Neill said, quote, I will execute any officer or manager they send. Dean Atkinson was the responding officer who delivered the eviction notice. O'Neill responded by shooting Atkinson. This was stated in the original deposition. The cops have since changed their story, trying to assert O'Neill simply woke up in the mood to hunt police down in order to mount a more damning case against O'Neill. This was not the case. Dean Atkinson is now being hailed as a local hero. They have minimized to obliteration the fact that Atkinson was delivering a man what amounts to be a death warrant before a particularly brutal cold snap. A desperate man was cornered and acted in desperation, refusing to go quietly. For context, there have been two police shootings by Walla Walla Police Department in the last decade. One resulted in a death. The other resulted in a man being paralyzed from the neck down. The second man was shot in the back. The gun found in his truck was a BB gun. Both men shot by Walla Walla Police Department were in the midst of a mental health crisis. O'Neill, presumed by the tips that have been submitted to us, have been a recipient of Social Security income, also had a diagnosis, and had a history of disability and mental illness. This time, the desperate, victimized by both our criminal injustice system and our property development practices, which pushes our poorest, most vulnerable community members around onto our streets, bashed back. Walla Walla Police Department and Walla Walla at large certainly did not appreciate the shoe being on the other foot, or the taste of their own bitter medicine. They did not hesitate to deliver to Christopher Borland, Casey Leon, or our unhoused neighbors during the 2014 golf course sweeps. It ended a lot better for Atkinson than it ever did for Borland, Leon, or the countless unhoused members of our community who so regularly experience brutality at the hands of our police that it doesn't even make the local news. Our local paper doesn't have the guts to speak on it, preferring instead to act as glorified advertising for our dubious tourist industry. Pointing this out to the Union Bulletin will result in an immediate ban from their Facebook page, while a celebration of police brutality and fascism does not. Walla Walla celebrates this type of brutality when committed by the police against the vulnerable. 
Like O'Neill, because we are a desperately cruel town where poverty, disability, and mental health is concerned, we hail those who commit such acts of human atrocity as heroes. We despise those who refuse to go quietly. O'Neill made carrying out this eviction as dangerous for the police as living on the streets was for him. We unapologetically feel the same gladness for O'Neill's defiance that the police and their supporters feel when the Walla Walla Police Department commits acts of breathtaking cruelty toward men like O'Neill. After all, turnabout's fair play. I will execute any officer or manager they send. These are the words of the revolutionary. One who had truly nothing to lose but their chains. And though those chains may wrap tighter now, they have loosened and weakened the chain for those to come. For unrelated reasons, we would like to give a shout-out to the Facebook page, Kalashna Convicts Local 187. In other news, in a report published by The Free Thought Project, a cop arrested after video showed him conducting mass shooting that injured six innocent people. It took nearly six months for the officer to be arrested, despite video of the incident. From Denver, Colorado. In lower downtown Denver, six innocent people were shot as multiple gunmen opened fire into a crowd of people early on a Sunday morning on July 17, 2022. Originally, one was held accountable because the bullets, which struck innocent people, were taxpayer-funded. All that changed this week, however, when Officer Brandon Ramos was hit with a slew of charges related to the shooting. According to the indictment, a grand jury charged Ramos with two counts of second-degree assault, both felonies, and 12 misdemeanor counts, six counts of third-degree assault and one count of prohibited use of a weapon, with five counts of reckless endangerment. The indictment came after 17 witnesses spoke up about the horror they experienced that night thanks to Ramos. I want to thank the members of the grand jury who have spent many days over the last several months listening to testimony and examining exhibits, Denver District Attorney Beth McCann said in a press release. This is a very serious matter, and I appreciate the time and attention each of them devoted to this important decision. The case will now move forward in the courts. As was reported at the time, after repeatedly denying the request for a video for a month, the Denver Police Department released it, showing their officers recklessly firing into a crowd in their attempt to kill 21-year-old Jordan Waddy, who was seen on video dropping a gun and raising his hands in the air before officers opened fire. The video shows that Waddy never pointed the gun at officers and had, in fact, dropped it to the ground before they opened fire on the crowd. Denver police previously stated that Waddy was holding the gun by the slide on the top when officers fired, which means he couldn't even fire it. But the video proves he wasn't even holding it at all when he was shot. After they carried out a mass shooting, police would later admit that, quote, something went wrong, claiming that their response that night was concerning, a massive understatement. It's certainly concerning and demands a review from the police department from a tactics standpoint. From a policy standpoint, Matt Clark, a lieutenant in the Denver Police Department, said at a press conference after the shooting, Did something go wrong? Yes. Six people that shouldn't have gotten injured that night got injured. Indeed, any time innocent people are harmed by the state, something has gone terribly awry. Instead of figuring out what went wrong that night and what led up to police officers disregarding the lives of hundreds of innocent people in an attempt to kill a man for dropping a gun, city officials banned food trucks that had absolutely nothing to do with the shooting. As Westward reports, the Denver Police Department announced that food trucks would no longer be allowed to operate between the 19th and 20th streets on Blake Street, 
19th and 21st Streets on Market Street and 20 and 21st Streets on Larimer on Fridays and Saturdays. Clearly, those six innocent bystanders would have been spared had these evil food trucks not precipitated the environment which led to cops shooting into a crowd. Had the food trucks not been there that night, according to police, cops could have killed Waddy without shooting bystanders, or something like that. We'll take out all the food trucks and problem solved, Sanjeen Mutik, a food truck operator affected by the ban, said sarcastically in an interview with Nine News. Reality is the crowds are still going to be here. They're still going to be drinking, partying, and the police will still have to be involved for keeping the peace down here. Mutik said that the ban on food trucks, which are now required to set up multiple blocks away from the bar area, is hurting local families. 99% of the trucks down here are owned by immigrants, people who speak broken English, who have much more limited access to resources than a bar or a restaurant or a hotel down the street would, Mutik told Nine News. If we're speaking about 20 food trucks, you're most likely looking at 30 to 40 families that rely on a livelihood from down here. Food truck owners often come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They also tend to have less money and fewer political connections than other business owners. Justin Pearson, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, told Reason. Sadly, this makes them an attractive target when powerful city officials make an embarrassing mistake and are looking for a scapegoat. On the same day body camera footage was released, Pearson penned a letter to the Denver government appealing to logic by explaining the food trucks had nothing to do with hurting bystanders. Although recent violence in the neighborhood supposedly motivates this ban, it is undisputed that food trucks had nothing to do with the violence, Pearson wrote, adding that the ban is misguided to punish certain small business owners who had nothing to do with the problem while allowing others to remain open. Pearson said that the ban not only hurts these small business owners for no reason, but it actually makes the area less safe. Worse, if the concern is public safety, then banning food trucks is counterproductive, Pearson said, citing a 2012 study conducted by IJ, which found that food trucks actually serve as eyes on the streets and make the streets a safer, more enjoyable place to visit. Their presence can help prevent crime and revitalize underused public spaces. In other words, banning food trucks from an area makes that area less safe, not more. Only government would think that pushing innocent, struggling families further into poverty is a solution to government hurting innocent bystanders a month earlier. Shameful indeed. At least for now, some accountability appears to be flowing in the right direction. Stochastic terrorist Haya Raichik the woman behind far-right, anti-LGBTQ+, social media account Libs of TikTok revealed her face during an interview with Tucker Carlson on December 27th in an article published by Queer Insider. The account, with the help of various far-right GOP members, built a rapid online following for posting out-of-context clips featuring people deemed to be on the, quote, on the left, a lot of queers basically, framed in such a way to ridicule and or paint its targets in a detrimental way. In an hour-long interview, Carlson began by playing a video shared by the Libs of TikTok account featuring mostly teachers with colorful hairstyles discussing personal pronouns and non-gendered concepts in classrooms. That's information that you should definitely have, but have never had until Libs of TikTok bothered to put it in one place and show you. And for doing that, the person who runs Libs of TikTok has been the focus of a lot of hate and many threats. So many that the person has remained anonymous until today, Carlson said, as he introduced Rashik. Ahead of the interview, Rashik jumped on Twitter to defend sharing people's videos in a way that frames them negatively, saying, Posting publicly available videos isn't harmful, hateful, or dangerous. You know what is harmful, though? Confusing kids about their identity, stealing childhood innocence, exposing kids to adult sexual entertainment, 
giving kids porn in school, and sterilizing and mutilating kids. After the interview aired, Rayshik shared a screen capture showing Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, having liked the tweet. Shortly after the Carlson interview aired, social media users began sharing an article by Chad Loader, who identified Chaya Rayshik as being among some since-prosecuted insurrectionists on January 6th during the Capitol riots. Today, Chaya Rayshik, a professional bigot whose anti-LGBTQ posts have been blamed for threats on children hospitals, revealed her face for the first time in an interview with Tucker Carlson in which she called the LGBTQ community a cult. The article reads, My analysis of the video footage leads me to believe that Haya Reichek was not merely present near the Capitol on January 6th, but that she trespassed on restricted Capitol grounds that day. In the rest of the article, I'll walk you through the evidence I used to draw my conclusion, so that you can form your own opinion. For more information on the evidence of Reichek's involvement in the January 6th insurrection, go to bit dot lee slash l-o-t-t exposed oklahoma has released a new bill requiring forced detransitioning of transgender adults under 26 years of age as reported by aaron reed a terrifying new bill was released late wednesday night in oklahoma that would ban gender affirming care for a huge number of people oklahoma senate bill 129 would ban gender affirming care under the age of 26 years old Gen Z would be entirely banned from gender-affirming care under this bill. This prospect is terrifying because Gen Z has been the most open about transitioning, and a bill like this would medically detransition a huge portion of Oklahoma's transgender population. This comes after other states like New Hampshire and South Carolina saw bills filed to raise the age of transition to 21, and places like Florida utilized a sham medical board to ban gender-affirming care under 18. Slowly, states are moving toward an outright ban on being transgender. It is for these reasons that people have begun calling the attacks on gender-affirming care an attempt at genocide. Adult medical detransition bills have been a hypothetical escalation until recent weeks. Anti-trans organizations such as GenSpect and Transgender Trend started pushing for an 18- to 25-year-old bans this year. Up until recently, the closest we have come was a representative in Missouri musing over increasing the age of the bill to 25 years old, a decision they declined to make. These earlier discussions of 25 and under bans and indications in committee hearings in states across the United States led me to make a call several months ago that at least one state would attempt to ban gender-affirming care for this age group. If this bill passes, it would be the harshest anti-trans bill ever passed. Oklahoma has already been on a downward trajectory for transgender rights. Anti-trans bills have been filed and passed in the state multiple times this year. One bill threatened to defund hospitals if they provided gender-affirming care for trans youth. The hospitals relented and stopped offering gender-affirming care for this population. Other Oklahoma bills that have passed include banning all trans youth from bathrooms that match their gender identity, as well as a sports ban. Gender-affirming care saves lives. One study in JAMA showed that gender-affirming care reduced the risk of suicide by up to 73%. The consequences of banning this care, especially for such a large population, are horrifying. It would outright cause an increase in the death rate in the trans community via suicide. Mental anguish from withdrawal of gender-affirming care and re-feminization or re-masculization would be too much for many transgender people to take, and the community would face one of its worst mental health crises, leading to real physical harm. Bills like this are designed to do two things, stoke fear in the trans community 
and turn up the temperature to banning gender-affirming care entirely by shifting the Overton window. Even if these bills don't pass, they help drive trans people out of the state or back into hiding. Likewise, they make it easier for, quote, moderates to then react with banning the care for those only under 21 or only those under 18. It's easy to see this effect when just three years ago, the main debate was over transgender people playing sports. And now we are looking at states attempting to eliminate their transgender populations entirely. The movement of the Overton window continues to threaten all transgender people in the United States. Recently, Texas released a resolution calling for an an end to gender-affirming care entirely. These bills are designed to be passed as anti-trans voices take over the Republican Party. People like Haya Rachik of Libs of TikTok, Tucker Carlson, and Matt Walsh turned their huge audiences on the trans community in a moral panic unlike anything we have ever seen. It is imperative that we show up and stop these bills, both in Oklahoma and around the United States. It's Going Down reported. On New Year's Eve, anarchist abolitionists and angry community members across the so-called United States, Canada, and all over the world all took part in yearly noise demonstrations outside of jails, prisons, detention centers, and juvenile hall facilities. Several communities used noise demonstrations to highlight ongoing campaigns and denounce recent deaths inside various facilities, such as in Tucson, Arizona, and Norman, Oklahoma. In Brooklyn, New York, for two nights, people marched and rallied, protesting the 19 deaths that took place throughout 2022 on Rikers Island. In Central California, people across the state converge on Corcoran Prison, the site of ongoing organizing on both sides of the prison walls. For more information on this story, check out the article Noise Demos Ring in New Year Against Backdrop of Increasing Police Violence and Growing Prisoner Resistance by It's Going Down. Other recent IGD headlines include On January 3rd, Community Defends Library Event in New York Against Violent Police, Proud Boys, and Neo-Nazis On December 30th In Contempt Number 24, Mumia pushes for new trial, updates on anti-fascist prisoners, support, hashtag stop cop city arrestees. And on January 6th, Inside the Wood Street Commons Fight Against Displacement. And CrimeThink has published an excellent year-end review called A Year to Endure on their website, crimethink.com. And now it's time for a musical break with the song Communism in Space from the Window Smashing Job Creators. Hit it!
Welcome back to Molotov Now. When we left off this story, we had just entered the period of our story in which the anarchists in town had started organizing the local Food Not Bombs chapter, among other things like starting the mutual aid network. Our local mutual aid efforts began in 2020 during the George Floyd uprising. The project Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network was born out of the Black Lives Matter rebellion in so-called Seattle. We started by helping the folks at the Feed the Movement table in Capitol Hill. We hit upon wraps as a good handheld and transportable method, made a few deliveries to Chaz, and haven't looked back. Been making regular deliveries ever since to various groups in the local area. We wanted to extend our solidarity and our food to our own area, as many here remain incredibly food insecure. Both housed and unhoused alike. So to that end, we organized a local chapter of Food Not Bombs. These efforts continued after the uprising as fire season hit, followed by a brutal winter leading into the beginning of the pandemic. There has been crisis after crisis ever since. After a particularly cold week during which zero institutional assistance was offered to the homeless, the Harbor Rat reported in February of 2021. Polar Vortex catches many unprepared, including mutual aid groups. Over the weekend of February 13th, a polar vortex swept through the region, bringing freezing temperatures and threatening the unhoused community in town. This was not technically a surprise since winter occurs literally every single year, and Grace Harbor Emergency Management was citing the National Weather Service's reports on potentially lethal temps as early as February 9th. As of February 12th, we were on the phone to Coastal Community Action Program, known as CCAP, trying to figure out how to get more spaces opened up to shelter folks on an emergency basis. We learned a lot in those talks and were somewhat deflated to learn that neither the city or the county had any plans to open up more spaces for shelter. There is only one cold weather shelter in town, ran by CCAP and funded by Grace Harbor County, with a capacity of just 25 people. The contract specifies this minimum capacity and its minimal hours of operation. Despite receiving thousands of dollars for this facility, it remains apparently understaffed according to CCAP. This understaffing is what contributes to its low capacity, since Grace Harbor County imposed stricter restrictions on the ratio of sheltered individuals to staff following a COVID-positive test there earlier this year. This test, the restricted spaces, and a general lack of trust in the institutions running the cold weather shelter have led to it being underutilized as a shelter. The county's own estimates put the number of unsheltered people living in the county at anywhere between 500 and 3,000 people. They delineate, define, and qualify between types of homelessness from, quote, literal homelessness to, quote, unstably housed. As if those unstably housed aren't literally ho homeless. There are still people without ownership of a ho home to stay in. There are still pe people who might not have a guaranteed place to sleep that night. Yeah, it's a way for them to split hairs so that they can focus on this smaller number of people that are, quote, literally homeless. And what are these definitions? What does it mean to be literally homeless as compared to unstably housed? This is just a way for them to downplay the severity of other people's situations who are on just on the verge of that same type of chronic homelessness. They're like, just because I have a couch to sleep on tonight doesn't mean I'm going to have one tomorrow. Well, that's not how the county looks at it. They see it as if you have a couch to sleep on tonight, then you're in a better predicament than someone who doesn't have a couch to sleep on that night. And so it's a way for them to split hairs and say that we're helping people who are, we're focusing in on the literally homeless because they're the worst off, Where whereas actually it's not 500 people, but 3,000 people who are actually homeless in the county. 
So split apart, these numbers range from roughly five to 700 people who are literally homeless and 3,000 who are unstably housed. Needless to say, the county's 25-bed shelter is insufficient to shelter even the lowest estimate. This is just ridiculous. There is nothing that they could say or excuse to say, say that they weren't prepared for the capacity uh, of homeless pe- people that would be. By their own estimates, they know how many people in the street need, need help, and they chose to only f- have fund for 25 people and, and claim that, that that's enough and that solves everybody's problems. Yeah, by their own count, at least 500 people are literally homeless in this county. And yet the shelter beds that they offer is 25. On the evening of February 12th, with the snow piling up to dangerous levels, we at Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network stepped our work into overdrive. Donations were requested and received, and we distributed all the hot food we could. We provided cold weather gear to those unable or unwilling to go to the shelter overnight. We told our friends we would check back on them in the morning and left them out in the snow. We were caught unprepared by this weather event and did our best to rally and provide and learn from the experience. We here at Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network are not yet at the capacity of being able to open and run a shelter of our own. So we refocused our attention on our previous mutual aid work, distributing food and supplies to the unhoused where they are at. We learned that transportation is one of the largest hurdles to folks utilizing even the current cold weather shelter since it is difficult to move all of one's belongings that distance each day. A 24-hour zero-barrier shelter would solve this issue, and a 24-hour shelter run as a mutual aid hub and not an institutional charity would be even better. But until radicals can effectively address the root causes of these material conditions, no amount of cold-weather shelters will be enough to shelter us all. Capitalism will continue to evict us onto the streets for being poor, and then harass those of us in snow-covered tents in the middle of a pandemic, housing crisis, and snowstorm, as the police did during and after this extreme weather event. So you can see from this article that when we first got started, even we were caught off guard by stuff. We realize no one's perfect all the time, and mistakes happen. The thing is, the County Emergency Management Office is not made up of first-time volunteers figuring stuff out as they go. These are supposed to be professionals who know what to do during a crisis, right? How could they be caught off guard by this? And you can also notice how one part of the county is either not talking to the other part or the county commissioners deliberately ignored the warnings from the Emergency Management and National Weather Service. And what was the plan with the 25-bed shelter? That was the minimum amount they could provide by contract. Why would they not go above and beyond that? Why have 25 beds become the norm? Like every shelter that opens up nowadays is 25 beds by, like, standard. Yeah, but 25 beds for 500, 700 people? It's like minimum wage. It's just the people in charge telling you that if they could pay you less, they would. If they could give you less beds legally, they would. Well, and like you said, if someone gets kicked out of the place they're staying at being unstably housed, there's another person fresh on the streets who's going to go to this shelter and be told what? Sorry, we're full? In a snowstorm? It really makes me want to do everything we can to get the Black Flower Collective project up and running so we can start to offer the sort of resources that are actually needed in this town rather than the faux pandering of concern by the city council while actively progressing in a soft genocide of our homeless populations. The city of Aberdeen has been on a crusade against the homeless for years now. They routinely generate their own problems. One of the most infamous around town is the garbage along the streets. From the Harbor Rat Report in 2021, Local outrage over garbage devolves into dehumanization of unhoused community. 
The latest round of reactionary outrage over the, quote, garbage that has steadily been accumulating in and around downtown Aberdeen began as a Facebook post by local businessperson Kelly Carlson Daniels. Miss Daniels has had enough of the wrappers and shoes strewn about her city and decided to do something about it. She began snapping photos of pieces of garbage lying around town. This soon led her to the unhoused community behind City Hall. Soon she had abandoned the garbage documentation escapade for a bigger game, taking highly intrusive and exploitative photos of the private spaces where these folks live, going so far as to enter the camp and take photos of people's living quarters, trying to document what? Garbage? Once back in the comfort of her house, these photos were posted to her account, and the comment section opened up to a whole new interpretation of the term garbage. As conversations ensued, it became more and more clear that the garbage that most people truly seemed upset with were actually the human beings being subjected to a disgusting lack of shelter in our community. The familiar garbage talking point only provided so much cover. As people in a comment thread, locked from public input, let their thoughts be known. While some blamed city officials past and present, others simply blamed the unhoused folks who have daily concerns about where to sleep and eat for not operating their own garbage services. All of this social media chatter, especially from business leaders, led to the smallest of actions by city elected, elected city officials. They hired two temporary workers to clean up the streets until another plan can be thought of. It also contributed to, to an article on the Daily World about the so-called garbage problem. This thread on Facebook soon turned just as toxic as the last, with a photo of people's homes, not garbage, credit of Kelly Daniels. The previous mayor, Eric Larson, even commented to remind everybody that the current mayor had cut the cleanup program after taking office, only to reinstate it now. So in short, a right-wing mayor was elected, cut a program that helped clean the city streets of garbage. The people who voted for him did not appreciate the marked increase in garbage and complained to have him reinstate it. All the while, the homeless were blamed. A fine example of electoral politics, if there ever was one. What we need is not partisan politics, but mutual aid. Reacting to the amount of money the city allocated for the temporary workers, some suggested the unhoused folks clean up the streets of their city or face some sort of banishment from the city. Perhaps not realizing that while the unhoused will clean up after themselves if given the proper resources, they are not responsible for cleaning up all of downtown, as they are certainly not the only people littering. And if their complaints now are that they can't exist without littering, why would they expect them to be the ones to pick it up? They obviously weren't able to do so in the first place, within their own logic. Yeah, no, it's probably the lack of trash cans around town that contributes to the amount of trash on the streets more than anything. According to the report, the fact that people will clean up after themselves if given the chance and the resources to do so is evidenced by the cleaning done by them today after being provided dumpsters by the city and garbage bags by us at Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. Most people tend to clean up after themselves, but it's hard to DIY a dumpster or a garbage truck. The final form of this whole debacle was not calls for the obvious solutions of providing people with the tools and resources to take care of themselves and their community, but more dehumanization. The issue here is not unhoused individuals, it's not even garbage. The issue is the systems we live in that demand the lowest possible wages and the highest possible rents, all at the service of profit. It is clear that neither left-wing or right-wing politics are sufficient to solve any of the problems we are facing today. In fact, they have largely been responsible for creating and perpetuating the systems that oppress us all. There is no doubt that the bureaucracy will grind on, as it has for so long, leaving many in its wake. We do not need them. 
So I wanted to note that the garbage dumpster that was at Tassel when it was still open was removed by the city, and that's large reason why there was so much trash accumulation at camp after that. Another manufactured crisis. The local fascists in town seized upon the issue of trash and attempted to use it as a site of organization to bring in people interested in simply cleaning up their town while introducing them to anti-homeless narratives and taking exploitive pictures of their escapades into people's tents and camps from a report filed in March of 2021. Local anti-homeless, anti-addict, hate group, Save Our Aberdeen Please, also known as SOAP, SOAP SCUM! was out on the streets on Sunday, March 14th, for a photo op with local right-wing politicians. They have couched their exploitative actions with the language of, quote, cleaning up their city, with many making comments alluding to who they might consider to be a part of their town. Well, it was a great performance, and that's all it was. They snapped a bunch of dramatic and shocking staged photos, as they always do. This PR stunt was clearly meant to recruit people and get likes, rather than actually address any of the issues that lead to such conditions. Once again, there will be harmful policies enacted, creating a situation they can again react to with outrage and use as fodder for more fear-mongering. I think we can all agree that litter of any kind is not good. It can be unsafe for those coming into contact with it. It can get into very sensitive ecosystems that deserve our care. No one is advocating for more litter, and this is the point. All involved would appreciate the city do its fucking job and clean up the trash around town. But if your critique of the problem stock at the surface, then we will never get into the roots of the problem and begin to address them. Garbage is not the problem here. The problem is that so many of our neighbors experience homelessness and addiction. The garbage is supposed to be collected by the city we pay to clean this place. The city seems perfectly happy to let this relatively minor issue get so big it becomes the boogeyman the right needs in order to gather support for their anti-homeless crusade. A deliberate confusion of the problems, their causes, and their solutions are a part of the clever strategy being employed by this group, SOAP. This is a deep-seated problem with very complex and nuanced solutions, admittedly not as easy as simply picking up trash. What we need is an organized community and working-class solidarity. That is, seeing the people around us who are out of work or out of doors as our friends and neighbors. If the system can treat them like this, what's to stop it from crushing you and your family next under its ever-expanding need for shareholder profits? So this really starts to reflect the anger that we were seeing at camp at the time. People felt like, after the city evicted them from the river and told them they would have a new spot to go to, then being locked in this stupid parking lot behind City Hall for way too long, that they were exhausted and done fighting with the city over stuff. They were angry at the fact that nothing was being done and there was no clear avenue to take any action. How much of these efforts are really about cleaning up the city, when the only time these people do this is when they do these big photo ops? What is cleaning up a small part of the city going to do long term, especially when this isn't something you actively do? Well, I think in their frame of reference, they are cleaning up the city. Well, yeah, if you're following what their interpretation of what the garbage is, which as we have seen from previous articles, how garbage has become a dog whistle for local reactionaries to refer to, refer to and dehumanize our houseless population. For those unfamiliar with the term, a dog whistle is a strategy of communication that sends a message that the general population will take a certain meaning from, but a certain group that is in the know 
will take away the secret intended message. This often involves code words. This tactic is employed heavily on the right wing and made popular through famous dog whistles such as states' rights in reference to the support of slavery or the Southern strategy era politics. Well, they weren't done. In fact, this was the beginning of a small groups of them going out and doing this regularly. They assembled again the next month, this time sporting the new tactic of invading campsites and snapping photos like Mrs. Daniels was of people in their tents. This is also the one where Wes Cormier starts his blog. Our friends at Save Our Aberdeen Please, or SOAP, will be returning to the steps of Aberdeen City Hall on Sunday, April 25th at 1 p.m. for another round of their exploitation and misery porn. On top of continuing to stage these so-called cleanup events, they have begun to display a few new tactics. Apparently they have found some folks' camps and invaded them, taking incredibly exploitative and potentially illegal photos of people in their homes. Yes, you heard that right. These fucking people are going around snooping on people as they lay in their tents. What would you do if these women were at your house snapping photo of your messes, opening your house up without your consent to be judged and analyzed by assholes online whose houses probably aren't much cleaner? Our friends on the streets have told us about constant harassment by people driving by, as well as by the police and the Washington State Department of Transportation, with some drivers coming by so regularly as to be recognized. Not to mention the very real possibility of deranged right-wingers escalating into causing real harm. The dehumanization from this group has now been paired with the tactic of documenting known locations of vulnerable people. This puts them in great risk of facing more harassment or attacks from SOAP followers, many of whom display a range of shittiness, from callous disregard for human life to calls for real violence. In late March, as though in response to our previous article on SOAP, a weekly blog called the Grace Harbor Weekly appeared from Wes Cormier. Besides typing a small seven-sentence Facebook post and trying to call it news, this blog seemingly serves as the soap-slash-GOP propaganda outlet. He has published a puff piece for Soap and its leader and activist, Casey Morrison. Ah, Casey Ann Morrison, the needle queen, trying to clean up our streets with Soap. As we'll see as we go further on in the episode, Casey Ann Morrison, along with Debbie Ann Parashini, both have used Soap as a political breeding ground for their campaigns that they use to get on a city council today. This is already getting scary for folks at camp. To have a stranger in their space like that snapping photos, it's just a recipe for disaster. The article also details the laws surrounding personal privacy and legal protection afforded to everyone with a home, whether it is a tent or a house. The same constitution that protects you and your home protects people in their tents, too. The next target for these soapists was the local needle exchange, ran by Willapa Behavioral Health, who drives in weekly from the next county over to operate a needle exchange in Grays Harbor County. Because the county commissioners, Jill Warren and Kevin Pine, voted to end the county-run needle exchange after previous efforts to protest it and efforts to run for office against it were successful. From the piece, Get Clean or Die, It's Time for the Harbor to Gentrify. Soap is at it again. They have been feeding their buddy, Jill Warney, unfounded rumors about the big, scary needle exchange that helps keep poor people safe. In this article, we will hear what Jill has to say to the city of Aberdeen City Council, about what she's been hearing, and debunk every single point she tried to have. The claim that Willapa Behavior Health doesn't require a one-to-one exchange of dirty needles for clean needles is false. This would be apparent to anyone who had actually attended it and talked to Willapa Behavioral Health staff about the process and seen it in action. The disturbing part is that both concerns she brings up have the same answer. Let's examine these supposed problems individually in more detail. 
First, she asks, why would people pick up that many clean syringes? Simple. It's because people have been harassed and intimidated by her supporters at every exchange, from shouting shame and other hurtful and harmful things at people, to open carrying pistols and other weapons, to forcing people to walk past their protests just to attend. This has led to a sharp reduction in overall use of the exchange, as, as well as the generous folks picking up dirties from multiple people, which is allowed by the program, and returning with clean needles, thus reducing the number of individuals exposed to the cruelty of soap. Next, she asks, why is this exchange located in the parking lot of an addiction treatment center? Again, it is because of constant harassment by soap and county commissioners in previous years, leading to the treatment center being the only place willing to host the exchange, not too dissimilar as to the location issues for cold weather shelters down the line. Not to mention that harm reduction and treatment services are often paired together. So we can see that both these problems are manufactured by Jill Warney and her supporters, and a substantial part of the community of Aberdeen are aware of their agenda and do not wish to see it enacted. Perhaps, instead of making wild assumptions based on the biased reports of her supporters, she should come to the exchange herself and see how it works. She could also just speak to her colleague, Kevin Pine, who actually attended the exchange and agreed that it was one-to-one. -one. Maybe she could simply consult the most recent science that is clear on the effectiveness of harm reduction services. If they ever had any actual alternatives to propose, that would fall in line with their constant insistence that they care about addicts, then it might be worth a listen. When someone utters the ultimatum of get clean or die, it makes it hard to see how that can be true. Oh, the needles. Grab those pearls, take a seat, pull up your fainting couch, and prepare to gasp. Drug users need needles. You might not like to hear it, but the science is clear that needle exchanges work both to combat disease and reduce use. On a local level, in recent city council meeting, council member Joshua Francie, who does regular cleanups of the local waterways and areas around town, reported finding less than 20 syringes in his most recent cleanup. This, plus all the children playing daily in the various parks around town, leads this author to ask the obvious question, where is Soap finding all these needles? The only thing this group ever says is what about our kids? Our kids can't play in the parks. Yet a simple drive around this town would say otherwise. Really, take a drive around town and see for yourself if there are kids playing in the parks. It is also not at all shocking to know for a fact that this hate group targets the unhoused and their encampments exclusively, reporting them to their rabid base as well as the city. Yet another drive around this town will demonstrate all the places nowhere near a homeless encampment that are filled with trash soap doesn't seem to care about. Anyone can take a photo of a stack of needles you've collected and claim foul, but there is zero actual evidence. But when your buddies are in the positions of power, you don't need anything but rumors. So their agenda is clear. You use your hate group to rally the base and get Pete Shave elected mayor of Aberdeen. Use him to help close Tassel as soon as possible, without any alternatives, as was once promised. Then get Jill Warney and Kevin Pine elected commissioners to both end the county's needle exchange and prevent a shelter from opening. Then Casey Ann Morrison, Debbie Ann Piercini, Melvin Taylor, and Tara Croft, and David Lawrence all run for city council, to stack the council for the Christian, neo-fascist far-right. That way you can advance your agenda of cleansing Aberdeen of the dirty and the poor to make way for your tourist centers and corporate retreats, Tesla charging centers, and whatever else they can dream up. This crowd is even opposed to the new Quinault Treatment Center, which is supposedly the one thing they advocate for, treatment, 
If it didn't serve their agenda to complain about the exchange setting up in the parking lot of Grace Harbor Treatment Solutions, then they would likely be opposed to it as well. So here we can see the payoff for these ghouls on the far right who pushed to get these two jokers elected to the county commission. Neither of them had any political or public administrative experience. They were elected on a platform of doing whatever it takes to push the homeless out of town or kill them trying. This whole thing stemmed from a letter to the city council in which Jill Warney actually said that people are going to get clean or die, and it's that simple. She seems to accept this brutal logic, and the consequence is that our elected leaders think that there are only two choices in this matter. They always try to couch their criticism in the idea that if only you did things through the proper channels and only take the route they prescribe to stability through treatment centers, then they would finally be appeased. Their recommendation is pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, because they understand as well as anyone that it is physically impossible to pull oneself off the ground by pulling on your own boots. That is where you can begin to see the root of their opposition to the treatment center just as much as anything else. Even when it's treatment, they are constantly saying is what they want the people to be forced to do, but only through their channels. If it were a white fundamentalist Christian program instead of one ran by the Quinault Indian Nation, their attitudes might about it might be different. Yeah, their big thing is forced treatment and forced labor, essentially. They see these people as simply unproductive and want to squeeze them for all they're worth. They believe falsely that everyone who is on the streets is unemployed and addicted to drugs. This stigma is a persistent talking point of those not fully educated on the situations or those who know but just don't care. One reason why this reporting effort was started in the first place. The year 2021 was a busy one for us as we grew our network substantially and added new projects like feeding people seven days a week with mobile delivery. It was also busy for the local far-right fascists as they began and were more or less successful in their campaigns for city council seats. As winter approached, CCAP decided not to run another cold weather shelter and conveniently forgot to let any other service providers know until the very last minute. Luckily, a small local nonprofit called Whole Harbor stepped up and ended up running one of the most successful and controversial shelters in recent memory. You're never going to please everyone, but we saw many people sheltered there who said they had never had such a pleasant experience at a shelter. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network provided direct aid on a nightly basis to the shelter until its closure in May. In April, though, we saw a fire at the Occupy parking lot located behind City Hall at the old temporary alternative shelter location. From the Harbor Rat. In March of 2020, the city decided to close the temporary alternative shelter location, also known as Tassel, and the COVID-19 eviction moratorium prevented them from immediately throwing all these people back out onto the streets. They did not do this out of a concern for their well-being, but at the threat of a lawsuit from the Attorney General. Since then, they have been setting policies and doing whatever they can to kick people out and reduce the population living there as much as possible. They have also stopped accepting applications to get a tent there, so whoever was there at the time is all they're letting in. This is a clear move to effectively close the shelter, while not facing any legal consequences. They are also prohibited from evicting people from Tassel because they are incapable of providing alternative shelters. So you can see that the same people pushing to close Tassel are also working against that end by pushing to hold up the shelter. They don't want a camp because it's not a shelter. They don't want a shelter because it's not housing. They don't want housing because of the money. What do they want? It is necessary to say that Tassel was only meant to be temporary with an original timeline of 30 days. We can see below from the Daily World at the time that the city intended to set up a long-term location to camp at. They even bought the very property that people had set up 
at by the river. None of this has happened. Since the inception of this project, the city of Aberdeen has neglected the camp. Despite showing up at $100 per month in the tassel budget, they have not offered laundry service for anything beyond the first few weeks. There has never been a safe and adequate way for residents to heat themselves. Still, if you ignore the $18,600 per month, which we absolutely will not be ignoring, to police the small camp, it is a quite reasonable monthly expense for the city. Unfortunately, the promises made to the people they tore out of the Riverside community they had built up organically were never kept. This is not at all shocking, as we know by now, that the state doesn't function to take care of people. It serves the rich at the expense of the poor. This poor management, neglect, and lack of services led to a few health and safety issues at the camp in the months preceding the fire. After almost two years of being exposed to the elements, every tent frame has broken, and although the canvases are largely fine, this leaves the occupant of the tent responsible for figuring out some temporary solution to the problem. Many tents do leak, requiring tarps to be used over the tents. The tents, when working perfectly fine, were never meant for long-term habitation and are constantly having to be vented because of all the condensation. This condensation, plus the extremely wet weather we have here, has led to some black mold forming on the pallets below the sleeping areas of the tents. The worst tent was completely cleaned and bedding changed out by the community there, but to replace and clean the entire camp is beyond what they are capable of. Speaking of wet weather, we cannot talk about the experiences of those living outside without discussing winter. This winter in particular was especially brutal. The weather was cold and COVID-19 added additional hardships and limitations for the residents of Tassel. The winters we get out here may not be the Siberian tundra, but the temperatures regularly reach literally life-threatening temperatures. People living at Tassel have not been allowed any safe and reliable way to heat themselves. This makes Tassel one of the most dangerous places an unhoused person can live. Elsewhere, they might at least be able to warm themselves and avoid fascist harassment. So, faced with the proposition offered by the city of just freezing to death, people resisted by surviving and using what resources they had to provide each other heat throughout the winter. Without proper infrastructure in place, less safe methods of heating were employed in order to not die. Even so, at least one resident suffered from frostbite this winter. To be very clear, the cause of the fire is still unknown. As of the publishing of this article, no results had been offered for the investigation conducted by the fire department. This author does not assume that the residents or their methods of survival contributed to the fire in any way. That said, the right-wing response has largely been reactionary, and to heap all the blame on those with very little power in the arrangement between them and the city. So this article will address those rumors while trying to remember that no cause has yet been determined. So from the ground up, we have moldy pallets, broken tent frames, leaking tents, dangerous living and heating conditions, deadly cold temperatures on top of months of poor planning, management, and lack of services and neglect by the city. This is the situation going into April, when just before 7 a.m. on Thursday, April 1st, a fire broke out at Tassel from an unknown cause. Many started placing the blame on heating methods employed by the residents of the camp. Whether propane tanks or various extension cords, they took to social media to spread false rumors. None of them seemed to question why the residents of Tassel were using such undesirable methods of heating as they were. Because if they had, they would realize that people cannot be forced to freeze to death by their government. These are small government people, right? People have the right to exist and to take action to survive. When the city didn't provide a safe and adequate way of heating the residents of the camp throughout winter, they set up the conditions for this fire, and consider how much deadlier it could have ultimately been. 
Following the fire, the city moved in with cleaning crews and heavy equipment to further traumatize the residents by throwing away many people's belongings, evicting one resident, and removing the tents from a few of the residents. The person who lost their belongings to the fire was so traumatized that they decided on their own volition to leave the camp. The city did actually replace one single tent that was damaged. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network mobilized a campaign to pressure the city to replace every tent and the platforms beneath them to no avail. This is another cycle we see every year. Each winter, there's a rash of fires as people desperate for warmth turn to burning whatever they can to stay alive, such as propane, alcohol, hand sanitizer, or garbage. It's sad and unfortunate that people would punch down, basically, to blame the homeless or poor housed people for using unsafe heating methods when there isn't always a safe alternative. People got to do what they need to to survive. I mean, at this point, the, the parking lot is just essentially being squatted, right? Yeah, this is after the original attempted eviction, which failed and was successfully resisted by the network and the campers. The city was mad at them for being in the parking lot after uprooting them from their homes and putting them in the parking lot to begin with. So this is when campers have been occupying the lot for a while and managing it themselves. So shortly after this is when Mayor Pete Shave destroyed all those pallets that were brought in to build shelters for people. Yeah, that's right. In fact, check out this clip of Pete Shave talking about that very event in a council meeting shortly after the attempted eviction. Pete Shave lies about over five completely different and made-up issues in a matter of less than 20 seconds. Truly, a man that could give even Trump a run for his money. Sabo, roll the clip. Wait, 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 wait a minute. How did you get in here? Get out of here. We're recording, asshole. Uh, Councilmember Ellis. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I would also like to express my um, regret and sadness at the events that occurred over the weekend um, right before um, a big wind and rain event uh, hit Aberdeen. Um, pallets have been used to keep tents in, in homeless encampments up off of the pavement, off of the ground, off of the wet um, for years and without creating a fire hazard. Um, those pallets were being used for that and also to create a very sturdy and rather decent looking um, structure to keep people protected. And, um, and again, it, it was a timing issue that just, just didn't seem very fair. Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should, uh, especially with this RFQ going out for starting a shelter. We've, we've got some processes in the works. Let's, um, now let those run their course. And I know that the camp on the city parking lot has overstayed its welcome and, and the space may well be needed by city uh, employees, but um, let's also have some compassion and, uh, and, and, look at the bigger picture and look for some workable options. And I would really like to be on the committee that's looking into this as well. Thank you. 
I just want to comment that this is all good and well, and I appreciate your everyone's compassion. Uh, <clears throat> every one of them tents down there have pallets under them. And obviously you didn't know that, but they do. And all these extra pallets they brought, they were going to burn them. They've been using a old style barbecue thing to have an open fire. And the fire department told them they couldn't do that. And they were cutting our tree branches out down there to burn. And then they had somebody bring in all them pallets and they were going to tear them apart and cut them up and burn them. That's why we got rid of all that. It's a fire hazard. So just, I know you didn't know, but they have pallets underneath their tents now. Councilmember Ellis. Thank you, Mayor. I, I just wanted to respond to your comments in that I, I spent um, Sunday morning at the camp talking with people and later talking with them again uh, in the afternoon. And not all the tents are on pellets. If they needed firewood, they could get firewood. Um, you can see there, there are two structures with new black PVC plastic. Those are structures they made using the pellets and, um, and PVC pipe and then covered with plastic. One is being used for a, um, a private place to use the, um, a restroom. And another was made um, to accommodate two individuals. They were hoping to replace some of the rickety tents with um, these structures and not to burn them. Um, I, I, I think that's a, a misunderstanding and um, my eyes must be lying to me. Mm. I, I saw them. Well, I, I know saw them cutting the tree branches and stacking them up next to their fire they had going. Mayor Shea, you have the majority support of the council on this right now. It's probably just best to, you know, while, while you're ahead. <laughs> yeah. I think we've got the opportunity to work with people at the camp. We just need to involve them in the in discussions and and let them know that thing what isn't acceptable and what is and and work with them. Thank you. Well, at the risk of um, negating what I just said, um, what's not acceptable is for them to be in that parking lot. So yes, let's work with them, but they can't be there. That's, that's done. So here Pete Shave lies on over five specific issues. Lie one, every tent has pallets underneath them. They did not. Many in fact were directly on the cold heat absorbing concrete. Lie two, the fire department said they can't use the barbecue. They said it's fine to cook on a grill, and were on the property earlier that day arguing with Mayor Shave about that very point. Lie three. Wood was cut off branches for a fire. Nope. Go look at the trees there for yourself on the live stream Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network had recorded that day if you have any questions. Lie four. 
Those pallets were brought in for firewood. There is zero evidence to support this claim, although two pallet structures still stand from what had been intended for them, which was building materials. Lie 5. There was an active bonfire at camp. Again, if you wish to see the invalidity of these claims, check out the live stream. That is a lot of absolutely baseless lies and conspiracy theories in a matter of less than 20 seconds that were so off the mark, even a member of his own team on the matter had to pull his reins in before losing ground to his absurd fabrications. Yeah, my favorite part was when he was like, I'm glad everyone's all compassionate and everything, but... Sarcastic as fucking hell. (laughs) So now we get back to that proposed shelter. Or last we heard, there was a study for the need for a low-barrier shelter. Well, apparently they came back with 45 beds is what the need is somehow. And then after this, the county put out its call for proposals for the shelter, and Chaplains on the Harbor applied for the grant and submitted a proposal. So this is the fallout from them discussing that and the two fascist commissioners dragging their feet and stalling to the point where the money for the project was returned to the state. From the Harbor Rat. Grace Harbor commissioners met on Tuesday, April 20th, and on the agenda to discuss was the chaplains on the harbor bid for a 44-bed shelter for Aberdeen. However, commissioners Jill Warney and Kevin Pine, through their non-action, created no progress for our community members sleeping on the streets. Instead, Kevin shared that, quote, shelters don't work, which is really confusing because the urgent need and solution is pretty simple. Humans sleeping on concrete. A shelter takes them up off the ground and gives them safety. Kevin, how does that not work? Leaving our people on the streets is a better option. Jill, seriously, 44 beds, that's it. That would cover a very small amount of what is actually needed, yet silence is what you had to give us all. One commissioner showed up and spoke up on behalf of public safety and the people, which was appreciated by many. A statement was read into the public record, signed by 124 of Aberdeen's finest. It wasn't a surprise that none of their concerns were the health, safety, or well-being of the population dying on our streets, but instead they were focused on money and retaliation. It's also not a surprise that their narrative fits Jill's and Kevin's. You know, Jim Walsh, Jill, Kevin, same thing. When the city and its citizens support something fully, a qualified organization meets the requirements to handle it, the state hands over $1.1 million to fund it, and still these two took no action. That's not only reckless and inhumane, it shows as clear as day the people they are serving, and as sure as shit is not the population of Grace Harbor. When we have people with this control putting politics above whether people live or die, it's a huge issue, a life and death issue. We can't be quiet about the inhumane treatment of our neighbors. This is our home, all of us together. When someone is hungry, you add another seat at the table. You don't kick them while they are starving and make them watch you eat. This inaction on the part of the commissioners raises quite a few hurdles for the new project going forward. One hurdle is clearly funding. Those behind the proposed shelter will undoubtedly start looking at legal recourse as well as alternative funding options, and we will update as soon as news comes in. Our group is far more limited in its funding options, but the city does own many plots of vacant or otherwise unproductive land, including the original Riverside property. A second hurdle is the rising threat of far-right fascists and their escalating threatening and harassment of the unhoused and their advocates. A third hurdle is the contingent that has arisen in opposition to the unhoused population. 
These people are on an escalating trajectory of violence, including documenting and publicizing known camp locations, drive-by harassment of unhoused people, threats and harassment of folks at the needle exchange, and now formations of a neighborhood watch. So the commissioners were basically not taking any action on this proposal as a way to block the project. I think they knew that simply voting no would be a bad look, but if they asked stupid questions for long enough, they knew the project's funding would eventually fall through. Yeah, $1.1 million for a year-round shelter sent back because two individuals didn't understand how to do their jobs. That's a lot of money to turn down because you're worried that too many people might get sheltered. Their main concern was the low barrier aspect of the shelter. Low barrier, as per dictate of the state, not no barrier. They were trying to act as if it would be a virtual trap house with people doing drugs on site and shit. Yeah, that was a rumor going around at the time, that basically low barrier meant that there would be no rules and no laws. Like, literally people were worried that this would become some no-go zone for police. They were literally asking if there would be any rules for the shelter. And like you mentioned, the low barrier status was imposed by the county's request for proposals. So there's no other form of shelter that could have gotten approval through this method. Of course there's going to be rules. All that low barrier means is that you don't have to be sober. And why should you have to be sober to access county-funded shelter? If the Catholic Mission wants to make its own sober rules, they are able to do so because they are a private organization with private funding. But if this shelter is going to be fully funded by the state through the county, then it has to be accessible to everyone. That doesn't mean that anything goes and rules and laws don't apply. No, it simply means that people can't be kicked out for refusing to take part in additional services or because they are an active drug user. This is what they try to make it sound like, that people would be actively using while at the shelter. Well, they were acting dumb, but I don't think it was stupidity. It seems too targeted and too aligned with what they were elected to do for me to believe that they don't know exactly what they're doing here. No, these actions are clearly deliberate. If they hadn't been elected to do precisely this, I could see it. But given their history and the context of their seat on the commission, it's pretty obvious what's going on. And now it's time for a quick public service announcement from the Department of Re-Education. Are you tired of high rent costs, getting paid peanuts, and having your bodily autonomy stripped from you by the Supreme Court? Try direct action. Direct action means doing stuff and is a fast and effective method of solving all of capitalism's problems without involving the state. Do you want free housing, health care, food security? Go out and get them. If people are homeless, organize a housing takeover. Find an empty house and put people in it. If people need health care, organize with professionals in the medical industry. Create free clinics and provide medical mutual aid. And if people are hungry, get together with your community and start a community fridge. Get those hungry hungry people some good meals. It's that easy. Note, doing direct action is not actually easy and takes a whole lot of groundwork, but it is rewarding and might actually help us create a better system. Try direct action today. Check out Reeducation's YouTube and TikTok accounts for more great in-depth videos and shorts from an anarchist perspective. Okay, you ready for Star Wars? This one is a big one to get through. In August, our small town went viral when trans city councilwoman Tiesa Meskis walked into a local Star Wars novelty shop and confronted the business owner, Don Sucher, over a transphobic sign he was displaying at his shop. As mentioned in her post below, 
Tiesa entered the store on Wednesday, August 4th, 2021, and her interaction was filmed. She was there as a private citizen. The fact of her position on the council was brought up by Dawn in a snide jab about her gender transition. She can be seen backing away from Dawn's approach, and upon being asked to leave, she promptly did so. Dawn couldn't let this go, though. Word around town would suggest he is probably not used to being called out on his bullshit. So naturally, he followed Tiesa out onto the sidewalk he apparently thinks he owns and is always littered with his junk. He asked her what her sexual organs were, and his behavior was even challenged by an onlooker who was simply passing by at the time. From Tiesa's Facebook page. There is a store downtown that I used to think was pretty cool, even though the owner had some wild beliefs. But today I learned that he put up a sign that was a direct attack on me personally, as well as every trans member of our community. So I went down just to see if this was real, and if so, I was going to grab a picture and leave. The business owner had other plans, which are in the videos. We have the right to be who we are, and no one gets to belittle us, ever. This post was shared with our group, Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network, shortly after being posted to Tiesa's personal Facebook page. Wednesday evening was when some local residents started suggesting and circulating calls for an action outside his shop on Saturday, August 7th at 10 a.m. Our group reached out to the people making these suggestions to try and form a plan for what seemed like something with the potential for violence from the local reactionary right. We asked for consent in sharing the call for action on our public page and received it. Early Thursday, August 5th. Unbeknownst to us, the story appears on Stormfront. We woke up on Thursday to a new landscape, one in which the story had been picked up by Seattle news outlet King 5, one in which the right-wing reaction had already gone far beyond what we had originally expected. Not expecting any announcement of our little protest on air, we were excited to see a major outlet like King 5 provide exposure for the story. August 5th, 3.31 p.m. From the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network Facebook page. Update. We have been informed that King 5 will be airing a segment covering this developing story at 4 p.m. Please consider tuning in to watch the broadcast and share the story as widely as you can. Thursday, August 5th, 4 p.m. King 5 aired their segment live on air, mentioning the grassroots calls for actions inaccurately as a protest planned by Tiesa in a move that can only be called irresponsible. A short while later, a corresponding article and Facebook post was made. Both went viral immediately. Thursday, August 5th, 4.52 p.m. We were made aware of and shared the moving and brave story of a woman who had survived years of abuse at the hands of this man, Don Sucher, first as a runaway and then growing up into adulthood. This story was a watershed moment of us receiving many tips from all over town about Don's storied past. The response to all these events on social media was, unsurprisingly, toxic and disgusting. Many of the usual white nationalists, Holocaust deniers, TERFs, and other reactionaries showed up to attach themselves to this situation. We do not engage in such conversations, and these cowards were silenced by our moderators. Although we were certainly not surprised by the reaction online, nor the possibility of some local assholes showing up armed again, as we have seen in the past, we never expected what happened next. Even with the low level of risk presenting itself as Thursday drew to a close, the Mutual Aid Network tried to impress upon those calling for actions the importance of transparency and that we felt the situation called for a full cancellation in the name of safety. It may have felt like a bit of an overreaction at the time, 
but come midday on Friday, we would all agree that canceling, as best we could, was the only safe move. We at Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network also realized that simply posting a cancellation on our page wasn't going to reach everyone that the original callout did. And even if it did, some would undoubtedly not take our advice and choose to show up anyway. There was also the danger posed to our unhoused community, who were also aware of the situation and seeking justice, but could not simply avoid the area. The decision was made internally for a small team of medical responders to show up and observe the crowds, moving in for triage and extraction as best we could if the need arose. We began to coordinate with regional mutual aid networks and street medic groups to get as much support as possible for the day of. Friday, August 6, 10.50 a.m. Tiesa took to her city council page to post the following clarifications based on the already shifting narratives being perpetuated on the right in mostly local comment threads on the related Facebook posts. Friday, August 6, 11 a.m. Despite not having organized this protest, we had decided that the previous night to do whatever we could to cancel this protest after King 5 announced live on air that there would be an action outside his shop at 10 a.m. on Saturday, August 7th, and that Don was assembling his supporters to counter. With that, the local group of trans supporters and families waving signs that was planned ballooned into some sort of Antifa commie battle in the way gone conspiracy-laden minds of some on the right. This broadcast made its rounds, and before long, the right-wing outrage machine had spun itself into a high gear, taking the usual narrative of trying to flatten our complex local situation to fit their pre-constructed narrative. Friday, August 6, 2 p.m., we quickly started receiving messages from all over about the potential for violence from the growing mass of angry and well-armed assholes. This new information was not contained to the hellscape of social media bots and trolls, This time, they included many credible threats and stories of people planning to come in from halfway across the country. As mentioned above, there had been alternative plans made to hold space off-site as a safe alternative, but support for that was pulled around 3 p.m. on Friday. We adapted our plan many times throughout the day on Friday, and by the end, were resigned to getting the word out as best we could to stay away if possible. We also realized that our unhoused neighbors do not have that luxury and and live and congregate in that area. Our priority was keeping them away from anyone else who still showed up as safe as we could. Friday, August 6, 3 p.m. The story officially went national, appearing on MSN, The Washington Examiner, New York Post, and Stephen Crowder ran the story along with many similar but smaller right-wing outrage generators. What started as a local and peaceful dispute between two residents in this small town grew in the minds of some on the right to be another boogeyman. A reason to issue their call to arms in defense of this poor veteran's endangered shop. The penultimate nod to how big of a trigger this was and the type of people being triggered was the story's appearance on the infamous white supremacist hate site Stormfront. Stormfront's Wikipedia can do a better job explaining what it is all about for the unaware. All from the internet's most famous white supremacist hate site. Let's look closer at that which is hard to view and be aware of where these arguments originate and fester the next time we hear it from the mouth of a fellow family member, church congregate, or friend. There is a reason why these avowed white supremacists latch onto and advance certain narratives. Our focus soon turned to emergency response. Not that our small collective was prepared for that any more than we were prepared for anything else that we've done so far, but we've made a plan with what we had and aimed to be able to extract any individuals who found themselves in harm's way. Our hearts overflowed with what we did end up having, though, as it expanded to include many instances of regional and national solidarity. One comrade from Atlanta spent their free time doing some valuable internet sleuthing for us and also was able to shut down a group text that Don set up. 
His son also set up a GoFundMe for funds, I suppose. Never hurts to capitalize off the situation. Saturday, August 7th, 8 a.m. The day of, we were in place to observe and respond to emergency situations. We knew that regardless of what we asked people to do in regards to avoiding the area, that's a certain number of dedicated people would still show up. There was no presence outside the store around 8 a.m. By 9 a.m., a small group of four or five had begun to form in front of the store. At this time, they did not appear to be Proud Boys or Militia, but did have American flags and some small signs. We remained mobile throughout the day, and soon we noticed a small group of people showing up to support the trans community, just as we had expected. They were approached by and engaged in conversation with people headed to and from the store. Nothing violent, but as the anti-trans crowd grew more and more, out-of-town plates started showing up, and the Proud Boy uniforms became prominent among the crowd. Many disgusting signs were seen as well as harassment shouted at the pro-trans demonstrators across the street. Saturday, August 7th, 10 a.m. As the now-canceled start time of 10 a.m. approached, our group was relieved to see that the situation seemed to have been de-escalated by the attempt to advise people to stay away. While perhaps 150 people flowed in and out of the support the child molester side, there was no mistaking that there was no threat for them to defend against. They had engineered a threat and responded unnecessarily to a threat existing only within their minds. Around 10.30, the majority of the pro-trans group had congregated at nearby Zalasco Park, just down the road. We did observe one person stay by themselves, feet planted in one spot, smiling with their sign at passing traffic and sneering fascists in the very middle of everything all day long. Saturday, August 7th, 11 a.m. Things slowly started to clear out as the people expecting a fight who didn't get it probably had to get back down to Portland to terrorize that poor city more. Our local anti-homeless, anti-addict hate group, Save Our Aberdeen Please, or SOAP, was of course present from the get-go and even went out of their way to clear up any confusion online as to where they stood on supporting Dawn. Saturday, August 7th, 3 p.m. It had cleared out enough that our crew took a break and ran our normal mobile route to get out the news of the day to those living outside and to warn them about possible violence from the blue-balled Proud Boys looking to beat up on the local unhoused after the sun went down. We dropped off some supplies to a few places and decided things were calm enough to have the normally scheduled community meal at Zalasco Park that we have been doing every Saturday for months now. We tailgated it up with some pizza, soda, and the basic hygiene supplies we normally carry with us. There was a wholly unrelated wound that needed some tending to, and we finally connected with the pro-trans sign holders who were still there, long after the out-of-town unfriendlies had given up and gone home. Saturday, August 7th, 5 p.m. We offered some food and made connections, talking with them about the day and the different dynamics of the last few days. What we discovered was that as soon as the threat to our city was gone and people felt safe to do so, those out to support the trans community made their voices and car horns heard in support of the remaining demonstrators. People stopped and yelled out of their windows about bad experiences with Dawn or just shouted thanks for showing up. Some even parked and stood with the demonstrators until it was time to go. We all watched out for each other as we made our way to our vehicles. Everyone made it home safe, shaken, more or less traumatized, and in ever-present danger from the far right for simply existing, but safe and alive. Saturday, August 7th, 8 p.m. Immediately that same night, we began the process of sharing resources for recovering from trauma and compiling the timeline events that served as the backbone for this article. 
We searched through every article from every outlet on this story, and it turns out that most of the reporting is just copy-pasting of the King 5 article or the Washington Examiner. But they showed a timestamp of the progression of this story's journey around the world. The overriding assumption we had been working on was that King 5 was the first outlet outside our local area to pick up the story and announce the time and place of the protest to the wide world. We were wrong. It turns out that after looking at all the timestamps, it appeared on Stormfront hours before appearing on King 5. In other words, it appeared on Stormfront before it left the harbor. When we examine the thread from the explicitly white nationalist, white supremacist website, we can see that it appears for the first time at 7.41 a.m. on August 5th. It would not appear on King 5's live broadcast until 4 p.m. that same day. This is not altogether surprising, since our area is ripe with neo-pagan fascists and neo-Nazis. It also fits the pattern of these message boards not being the place where right-wing talking points end up, but often where they originate. This phenomena of right-wing narratives and conspiracy theories originating in neo-Nazi corners of the dark web, then making their way to the average American dinner table, is starting to be more well-understood and well-documented. Even John Oliver did a famous segment on the white supremacist to Tucker Carlson pipeline. This well-funded hate machine picks up a narrative from the sorts of places where people aren't afraid to say, it's the Jews, and it gets bounced around the lower-level Andy No slash Steven Crowder grifter types, where the language must first be coded to talk about a capital A Antifa and BLM, or the Democrats, instead of the Jews. Yet the overall narrative stays the same. The timeless chant of the oppressor. Be scared. The reason you have so little is because of those with less power than you, not more. You think you have complaints now. Oh, just wait. If you don't support me, you could have even less. These people who disagree with us aren't even real people, Americans, etc. Well, we think your politics are boring as fuck. After being laundered for a more mainstream audience, primed for years to look forward to turning their outrage to a new manufactured problem delivered to them by Fox, it makes its way to Tucker Carlson and boom, and that's how you get white supremacist narratives at your dinner table. Our group actually ended up being called out by Andy No on his Twitter. For those who are unaware, Andy No, who we have it on good authority, is the type of person who leaves their brights on as they pass you. It's a low-effort troll on the far right. He is famous for the, his doxing of anti-fascists and leftists and so-called Antifa. It's hard when everyone is Antifa, though. After losing his job at the Quillette for witnessing the Proud Boys planning a violent attack on Portland activists and doing absolutely nothing to stop or report it, he now poorly edits the post-millennial. Think Der Sturmer meets Vice News, and is known to love a nice cold milkshake on a hot summer day. <laughs> Fucking milkshakes. He sees Antifa as a boogeyman, a shadowy organization that controls all dissent and all opposition to those whose political leanings could well be described as fascist. He probably checks under the bed each night. Poor guy. Andy No uses Antifa as a tool to code for more standard white supremacist thoughts, as well as stirring up the outraged trolls of the far right to harass, threaten, intimidate, and dox people he deems to be Antifa. Him and others like him helped create the narrative that our group was Antifa, either some invading force from Seattle or Portland, or perhaps an outpost located in Aberdeen itself. They also created, out of whole cloth, the idea that what was intended that day, and ended up being the case, ironically, was not a small local affair, some sign waving in support of our trans community, but in fact Antifa coming into Aberdeen to destroy this poor veteran's business. They accomplished this whole feat in less than 24 hours. 
The participants in this network all live in Grace Harbor. As previously mentioned, the, quote, counter-protesters did not. So, an outside force of armed and violent people did descend on our town in order to save this man from a supposed outside force coming to descend on this town, a wholly manufactured narrative they themselves created. They supposedly came to defend his free speech as well. What this means is that a small group of people in a city somewhere else can ask their friends on Facebook to join them at a corner downtown to express their own free speech and demonstrate for their firmly held beliefs, and some group of -of out-of-towners looking for a fight might very well come into their town to shut it down. That's what they did. They came in to intimidate us, harass us, and scare us into not coming down to enjoy the very same right they are supposedly standing to defend. The hypocrisy does not end there. We mentioned previously that Soap made an appearance. For a previous history on this local group's actions and rhetoric regarding their dog whistles of, quote, cleaning up Aberdeen, check out previous Harbor Rat reports. From the poor and homeless to the LGBTQIAX plus community, They see us as dirt that needs to be scrubbed from the face of the earth. They see us as a virus, not their peers, not their family, not their neighbors. They have completely dehumanized us for many years, and now we see the results. This soap presence included city council candidate Casey Ann Morrison, who has left us all with no more misgivings about where her political alignments are. Fascist street gangs, to say the least. On top of dodging questions on her socials about Jim Walsh and his anti-Semitism, she has taken her politics to the next logical step. Casey Ann is saying that because Tiesa sits on city council here in Aberdeen, that she was, and presumably always is, automatically acting in her role as a councilwoman, and therefore the actions in the video must constitute government interference in business. Well, we have news for you, Casey. Willapa Behavioral Health is a business, too. Are we to believe that you and Debbie Ann plan to stop interfering with their business if and when you're seated on the city council? What a joke. First of all, legally speaking, any council member can simply state their intentions to act as a private citizen, and that seems to be enough. But in regards to Casey Ann, this is a person who has been standing outside the local needle exchange in town, now operated by a private business, protesting with signs for the entirety of the program. So they think it's fine for them to show up to harass and intimidate both clients and staff of this business they don't like, and it's okay to hold a protest outside of it every single week if they don't like it. But if anyone else wants to do the same thing, they call the militias in. We all know her desire to get onto city council and clean up Aberdeen is spurred by her anti-homeless, anti-addict hate work. I doubt anyone sincerely believes that she or any other soapists will be leaving the good folks at Willapa Behavior Health alone as soon as they take their seats on the city council. Ironically, after the super spreader event during the height of the pandemic, Don Sutcher became sick with COVID and eventually had to close his shop shortly after the protest. Despite their attempts to protect this old man, it is possible that this event led to his catching COVID. We have not heard or seen from him since. The storefront is now owned by Terry Emmert. The shop was one of two recent buildings owned by Emmert to burn down over the last few weeks here in Aberdeen. As mentioned on part one of the episode, it is house fire season in Grace Harbor. In Facebook comment threads, people have already started blaming the homeless as per usual. Everything in this town gets blamed on them because 
they are an easy tar- target, regardless of whether or not the houses that burnt down are abandoned houses being squatted in, or the houses of impoverished citizens who struggle to keep their houses heated during the winter. So in the end, these Proud Boys showed up for a few hours and probably got this guy sick. He ends up closing his shop, and now it's a burnt-out husk owned by Terry. Hilarious turn of events. When you own that many buildings, there are bound to be some mishaps. Maybe Terry was trying to get some insurance payouts for a few of his decrepit buildings. Hey, if those buildings can't be opened up and used for the community, then fuck them. Who cares? Well, yeah, a lot of those buildings could be housing people right now. We could open them up and start running community-centered programs out of them at a grassroots level. Let the community have them for whatever it needs. Leave those decisions up to those who it affects. These are exactly the kind of things that politicians just can't help us with. These aren't policies we need them to enact on our behalf. These are ways of reorganizing our lives so that we spend our efforts meeting the needs of our communities, not slaving away so our landlords can profit off of us. They can't do it. It's really not their job. And even if they happen to be so inclined, they would never be able to do it anyway. That isn't how things work, is the refrain you'll get from normies when you suggest these sorts of actions. Oh, that's not realistic. Which is more of an acknowledgement of the problem than an excuse for not acting. We need big swings. We don't need incremental progress. We need organizations that can spur the kind of grassroots community building that is needed to strengthen and educate ourselves enough to take such bold steps towards our new world. And now it's time for a musical break with the song Goodbye Lulu Part 2 from Days and Days off their album Show Me the Blueprints. Hit it! To 
when everything takes for the memories I'll catch down the line when we need to You know the first round's on me We'll get headed to the game and give me some hang time Peace out, farewell to everyone Everything takes for the memories I'll catch down the line when we need to You know the first round's on me We'll toast to the world that we left behind Yeah, we'll toast to the world we left behind We'll toast to I'll catch it out alive when we regroup In hell, the first round's on me We'll get hammered to the gimme gimme's all things We can see many cycles within what we've talked about today. We can see that every year there is a scare campaign by local businesses in regards to the homeless. Every year there is a pushback against the emergency cold weather shelter by the same far-right actors. Every year a different agency applies to hold the shelter because of the craziness of last year's shelter. Every year there is an increase of deaths around the winter months. We saw politicians flip-flopping on issues and making hasty decisions. What started as a liberal mayor's misguided attempt to, quote, solve a problem has devolved into a years-long debacle that has ended up even closer to the same train tracks they tried to remove them from, and in even worse conditions. This move to evict a long-term stable camp has resulted in more people being displaced, more right-wing scaremongering, more deaths, and worse living conditions. A grassroots, self-managed community was destroyed by the state that day when the bulldozers came. And despite multiple and continued promises to offer the dwindling former residents some remediation or some sort of long-term solution as to where to live, the city of Aberdeen has made no tangible efforts to do anything that would materially benefit the people on the streets. Why should we tolerate this system? That which allows for rich developers like Terry Emmer to hoard over 60 properties, mostly derelict and vacant, while our friends and family on the streets suffer in a camp under a bridge and split by train tracks. The current situation was only ever temporary to begin with, as was the place before that. What people need is some stability, a place to call home, a place they know they can stay and build something of a life for themselves and not be subjected to the cruelty of the state. No ethical person would allow humans to starve and die in the cold while all these potentially habitable buildings rot from neglect. This happens because our legal system protects property rights more than it protects its citizens. It prioritizes capitalist interests by not taking these abandoned buildings for community use, instead letting them just get bought up by gentrifiers like Terry Emmert, who will eventually align with the city to eradicate the current population, especially the poor and unhoused to make room for the following population of newcomers wanting to live in the modern tourist trap rendition of a quaint logging town with some cool musical lore, lots of craft beers, and plenty of shitty art. The city spends money on watering its rows of pink flowers each summer, while mutual aid volunteers make sure camps are stocked with water. This is the system we have, but it can't be the system we assimilate into. We have to do more than simply fill the gaps being left open by the state and nonprofit sectors. 
we cannot be their safety net. When they realize we will perform this rule, then they will count on us fulfilling it in their calculations. Our mutual aid risks are being co-opted into the very system we should be resisting. We are not here to prop up the system of oppression that, that gives the others authority over our lives and our communities. We have to mount resistance. Grassroots direct action to start to organize our communities. If we simply hand out food, supplies, and care, we risk becoming charity. We must remain ever aware that our free labor will be exploited by those who we allow to do so. Whether public or private, home and land occupations have been a mainstay in radical political tendencies from the beginning. The ability to use your mere existence, your very presence to make a strong political statement, has always interested the most radical among us. Why shouldn't we continue to learn from and improve upon the tactics of occupation to suit our current needs? The buildings in this town belong to us. They are resources of this community, not commodities to be exploited for the financial gain of a few. We can make our presence known in a multitude of ways, by slapping up posters that draw attention to Terry Emmert, the struggles of the homeless, or other local issues, learning from previous attempts to open and hold buildings so that we can avoid the mistakes of previous generations, starting to plan out which buildings would be suitable to occupy and then organizing our communities to be able to both open, hold, and most crucially, maintain a building or land occupation. These are the radical projects that anarchists need to be undertaking. There are also many cunning ways to stay in vacant houses undetected for a different approach. We will need confidence and loss of organizing to undertake the type of occupations we need to undertake. Not a mere symbolic victory over the city or police, but a real sustained movement that can maintain and self-govern a space long term. We don't need to rush into breaking into buildings. What we need is to build the community infrastructure, the organized people necessary to run such a space. We need to ready ourselves to take these buildings. There are also many collectives working towards securing land enough to offer tiny homes to low-income individuals around the state and the country, or even just space enough to hold meetings and hand out food consistently. These sorts of spaces can be used as precursors to the type of long-term occupations necessary to bring any material comfort to the afflicted. If you are local, we invite you to check out our comrades at the Black Flower Collective, as they are working towards precisely this model of tiny home eco-village with a supportive social center. We will discuss their plans and think about what sort of role an LLC like Black Flower can play in the struggle for our liberation in the next episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and, and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know we, you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the John Brown Gun Club, who showed up to help provide security for our local drag show in the wake of ongoing national terrorism by the far right. Queer Satanic, who after winning in court, are still raising money to pay for their legal fees from the failed lawsuit levied by the Satanic Temple, and are always appreciative of any donations to their legal defense funds. To donate, their website is queersatanic.com. Don't forget to go to bit.ly backslash Lakota Law ICWA and sign the petition by the Lakota People's Law Project telling Joe Biden and attorneys for the Department of Justice 
to do everything in their power to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act and defend Secretary Deb Haaland. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. It is the heart of winter, and we are still without shelter in Aberdeen. Without intervention, more and more of our homeless population are becoming casualties of the state. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is still running a winter fundraiser to buy warm weather gear for the homeless. To donate, visit bit.ly backslash crman donations. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies and can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social, K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A, and follow us and other online activists on Decentralized Federated Internet. Thank you to Days and Days and the window-smashing job creators for letting us use their songs on the program today. Don't forget, the Communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry before March 6th for our Spring Equinox edition. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. Remember to check out Sabo Media's new website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Saboteurs, Ask Annie, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off.